Father, thanks for giving us the uh, evening again together. We're grateful for you and what you have to teach us tonight. Uh, we pray that your, um, your word would come out clearly and that we would be able to walk away understanding more of um, who you are and what you've done. And uh, we're grateful for you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. All right. Today, second to last class here. Uh, we're going to wrap up next week. But we, we're going to discuss tonight the doctrine of the church. Um, so basically, the theological study of the church it has a technical te- term. It's called ecclesiology. So uh, ecclesi, uh, that part of that word comes from the Greek word ekklesia, which is where we get we translate that as church uh, into English. Um, the, we'll talk about what ekklesia means a little more specifically, but uh, ecclesiology is the study of the church, or the study of um, God's people, more or less. So uh, we're going to walk through what the church is, what the church does, um, and, and I hope it'll be helpful for, for us. Um, this is going to be our kind of working definition. Um, I, I have a more simplified version, but this comes from uh, the Evangelical Free Church Statement of Faith. Um, this doesn't really matter, but our church is a part of the EFCA, so this would be a part of our statement of faith. And um, I just thought it was a helpful definition, um, a helpful kind of clar- clarifying issue. And the components that are brought out of this, we'll, we'll talk about. Um, so it says, we believe that the true church comprises all uh, who have been justified by God's grace through faith alone in Christ alone. They're united by the Holy Spirit in the body of Christ of which he is the head. The true church is manifest in local churches whose membership should be composed only of believers. The Lord Jesus mandated two ordinances, baptism and the Lord's Supper, which visibly and tangibly express the gospel, uh, though they are not the means of salvation, when celebrated by the church in genuine faith, these ordinances confirm and nourish the believer. So that would be our, our church's position on what the church is, but um, obviously different denominations have different, slightly different definitions of, of this. They wouldn't use the exact verbiage. Um, but we're going to walk through essentially what uh, all Christians who believe the Bible or are, are, uh, you know, believe it's their final authority would agree about the church. So here's a more simplified definition. Um, The church is a global community of all true believers through all time. Ephesians 5.25 says that Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. So here the term church is used to apply to all those who are in Christ, that he died to redeem. And that's not just about the particular church that he's writing to. It's broader than that. It's global. Um, And so the church is those people that Christ died to redeem in all places and throughout all time. Um, So as we kind of walk through this, we're going to take some of the, I guess, characteristics and markers and and activities of the church. But before we do that, let's just kind of get a big overview of what, what, how the church exists. Um, the church exists as both invisible and visible. And what I mean by that uh, is that the church is both um, invisible and visible, meaning 
the true spiritual reality of those who belong to the church cannot be seen by us. We cannot see the fullness of God's church. Part of that is because um, we are limited in space and time, right? That's really the issue. Uh, We can only see a snapshot of the church as it exists where we can see it. So when we say that the church is invisible, we're not talking about something that can't be, you know, like it's invisible in the sense that you think of when you hear that word, but it's that we are not able to see the full reality of it um, as we exist right now. But the invisible church is completely known to God. So the other aspect is that we can't actually see the condition, the spiritual condition of people's hearts. So there's an element of that where the church is invisible, even in the sense that those people that we're in the church with, you and I as individual people cannot fully know who truly believes in Jesus and who does not. And that's not for us to know. That's not our job to figure that out. It's, it's the Lord's job to figure that out. But the church is invisible in, in that it exists throughout all of time in human history. And it exists uh, in globally now. Uh, and it exists among true believers, which we're not completely able to discern as fallen people ourselves. So 2 Timothy 2.19 kind of gets to this point when Paul writes, The Lord knows those who are his. The Lord knows those who are his. So we can say that the invisible church is the church as God sees it. Okay, so the, the invisible church is the church as God sees it, which is perfectly, right? He, he's going way back to all those attributes of God we talked about at the beginning of this class. Uh, he is omnipresent. He's omniscient, right? He knows all. He sees all. He is all. Uh, in in uh, well, he is all places. I should say he's not all. We're not pantheists, um, but that's that's what we're saying. That the Lord knows those who are His. So the church, uh, the invisible church, is the church as God sees it. But the church is also visible, right? There are aspects of the church that we can see. Uh, there's gathering in worship. There's profession of faith. There's membership. There's baptisms, uh, participation in the Lord's Supper, there's service and ministry, there's tithing, there's all kinds of metrics that we can see in, in the church and, and people participating in these things. Um, and so we could say that the visible church is the church as Christians on earth see it. And so even though we're limited in our full understanding of the church, or our our full ability to see the church entirely, um, there are clear things that we can see that make a church, that people that we're around and worshiping with seem to be indicating that they're Christians uh, through their activity, through their words, you know, those kinds of things. Even though we can't see the human heart, we can pretty well assess, like, okay, who's a healthy church member who's doing the things that they should be doing, even though we may not be able to see the fullness of the motivations for that or the heart behind that. So anyways, the church is invisible and it's visible. The church is also global and it's local. Uh, So let's talk about the global side of it first. The church is um, a global community. Now that's sometimes referred to as a Catholic community. The word Catholic 
uh, is, I think it's from the Latin that just means global or worldwide or you know, universal. Um, and so when we talk about the church, we need to recognize that it's a global or Catholic community. So when you read the Apostles' Creed and it says we believe in one holy Catholic church, uh, we can say that even if we're not a part of the Roman Catholic church because we are a part of the global church, the universal church. Um, and so I know that word Catholic has a lot of connotations for, for those of you who grew up in the Roman Catholic church and those kinds of things. And usually that's what comes to mind when you say Catholic, but Catholic has the meaning of worldwide. So church is a global community of true believers in Jesus. So it's, it's not purely just, okay, this group or this location. Uh, it's, a, it's a global community of true believers in Jesus. The picture of this that we see uh, is uh, found in several places in Scripture, but Revelation 5, 9, and 10 um, is one of these great passages. It's, this is basically a scene uh, that, we're, that John has given, a vision that John has given in heaven as he's writing Revelation, and he's recording what he sees, and he sees all these people around the throne of Jesus. And here's what they're saying. They're saying a new song saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and open its seals. For you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God, from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom of priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. So, so there you're seeing the emphasis here as the italicized words, from every tribe and language and people and nation. These are. This is a scene of what heaven is uh, going to be like as we get there, although we're talking time and stuff, right? So it is that way now as God sees it. It'll, when we get there, we'll recognize it this way too, that people from all of the nations and tribes and people groups and languages on the earth have been ransomed to Jesus by his blood. And so that's a picture of the global church as it exists in heaven. Um, we also see Galatians chapter 3, 6 through 8, the Apostle Paul says, Know then that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. And the scriptures, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand, beforehand to Abraham, saying, In you shall all the nations be blessed. So the word Gentiles... Um, it comes from the Greek word that we would also translate as ethnicities. Um, so people groups outside of the Jewish people, right? So you have the Jews and the Gentiles. Those are kind of the two broad categories in the Bible. Um, and so Paul is talking here to the Galatian Christians who have been kind of sucked into this world of Judaism and... Uh, they're kind of going back to the law and, and trying to find their justification before God in their works of the law. And he's making the point halfway through this letter that, no, those who are of faith, those who believe in Jesus are the sons of Abraham. And the scriptures, foreseeing that God would justify the nations or the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham. And if you read Genesis, I believe it's chapter 12, uh, where, he, where God actually says this to Abraham 
And uh, he says, in you, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. Well, Paul takes that and says that was God preaching the gospel in advance of, of Christ coming into the world. So there you're seeing the, the global church is not just one ethnicity or one people group. It's, it's all the nations. Jesus talks about this as well um, in John 10, 14 to 16. This is the famous passage of Jesus saying he's the good shepherd. But notice what he says. He says, I'm the good shepherd. I know my own and my own know me just as the father knows me and I know the father. And I lay down my life for the sheep. Then he says, here's the, here's the point that I've italicized. I have other sheep that are not of this fold. This fold is a reference to the people of Israel. He says, I must bring them also, and they will listen to my voice. So there will be one flock, one shepherd. So Jesus is using the analogy of a shepherd and a sheep, which would have been very familiar to the people he's talking to. It was an agrarian society, lots of shepherding happening in Israel. Um, And he's saying, listen, just like there's your flock of sheep over here, I have a flock that I have to bring into this. And I'm going to get those, those sheep in here. And so he's talking about the Gentiles in the context here. Um, and and he says that we're all going to be one flock, one shepherd, with one shepherd. So there's, that's not directly about the church uh, necessarily, but it's the implication is that Christ is going to save people from all the nations. And then finally uh, on this one, Matthew 28, this is the Great Commission. Uh, verse 18 through 20, the Great Commission is where Jesus tells his disciples just before he's ascended into heaven what they need to do. And it says, Jesus said to them, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you. And behold, I'm with you always to the end of the age. So there Jesus is giving his disciples a commission and his call is go into all the world, all the nations and make disciples, make more followers of Jesus. That's what a disciple is, the follower of Jesus. So we're called still to this day to continue this work um, as the, the nations are still needing to be reached and people right here in our own town needs to be reached too. So we're, we're continuing this effort, but the disciples had this specific call, and that's what you see happen through the book of Acts. The book of Acts essentially is outlined in a way that's like concentric circles. They're just kind of moving out further and further as you read through the book of Acts. It starts in Jerusalem, and then it moves out to the next region, and then the next, and the next, and you get the Apostle Paul and his guys uh, going to uh, faraway places. And so, and the book of Acts, interestingly, ends with Paul going to Rome um, in prison, but still going to Rome. And Rome, in the, mind, the mindset of the first century uh, writers of the Bible, would have been like the nations. That's the, kind of the representation of the nations was Rome, because Rome owned and operated in most of the world, known world at that time. So anyways, that's just an interesting fact. But um, we're, we're looking at this idea of all nations. That's Jesus' heart and his intention. So the church is global, okay? The church is also local. So the New Testament word, which I've mentioned already, 
uh, is the Greek word ekklesia. This is where we get the word church. Uh, the word ekklesia is translated basically as a gathering or an assembly. That's the meaning behind the word. So why they went with church, um, I'm not exactly sure. I'm not a linguist. I'm not a translator of the Bible. But uh, the word ecclesia that we, if you read the word church in your Bible, in your New Testament Bible, you're, it's going to be this word ecclesia um, in the original Greek. And it means a gathering. It means an assembly. So that, in, that teaches us something about what the church is. Uh, it's a group of people that come together. That implies locality. That implies being around each other, right? So, so the way we need to understand this is that there is just one global church. That's true. But there are many, many churches that are expressions of the local church, uh, of the church on a local level. And so... Uh, when we go back to that definition of from our doctrinal statement here, um, it says that the church is manifest in local churches. And that's what they're trying to get at, is that, yes, the church exists as a global community of Christians through all time, and anyone who's a true believer in Jesus belongs to the church. That is true. Um, but Christians are also called to get around and be within a local congregation as well. That the, that the whole global church is supposed to scatter out and then gather into smaller local communities. And you see this all throughout the New Testament letters. Paul writes letters, and actually all of the New Testament letters are written to churches or to individuals within the church, usually leaders within the church, but you see that there's a clear connection uh, between uh, their letters and the local church. That's why we call, like Paul's letters, we don't call Paul 1, 2, 3, 4, all the way to 13, right? We, we call them the letter to the Romans or the Ephesians or the Colossians because that's who he's writing to. So look at Romans 1, 7. Here's when he says, this is a letter, right? So he's addressing his, his audience to all those in Rome, who are loved by God and called to be saints. So in Rome, they're in a location, they're in a, they're in a locale. Co- Corinthians, uh, to the church of God that is in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ, Jesus, called to be saints together. And those who are uh, in every place who call upon the name of the Lord Jesus, both their Lord and ours. So every place locations. Galatians 1, 2. This one's interesting. It says, to the churches of Galatia. So this is actually one of the only uh, letters that we have from Paul that was written to not just one church, one local church, but to a region of churches. There are churches in Galatia. So that's interesting because that means that there, there isn't just some massive mega church that all the Galatian Christians come into. There's evidently a number of smaller churches probably gathered in homes because that was where most of the churches met in those days, partly because of persecution, partly uh, just out of the fact that they didn't have church buildings, right? And they probably weren't getting building permits from the Roman government to build church buildings. So you had to meet where you had, had room. And so, you know, people that owned big houses would host the church. Well, that limited how many people could get into the church in a sense. So, 
you had to multiply churches to keep you know people coming in to hear the gospel and so galatia is an interesting example of that where the galatian church was multiple local churches uh, we won't belabor this. We'll just look at one more. But Ephesians 1, uh, to the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus. And we could go through every single letter that Paul writes, and it's the same way. It's really an interesting thing. So the church is global and it's local. And, and it, I, I emphasize this because I think, I, obviously I might be preaching to the choir here, I don't know, but um, Christians need to move past this well, it's just Jesus and me, and I'm a part of his big church, and I don't really need the local church. You do. We all do. Um, that's, that's how God designed it to be. God designed us to live in community with other believers. And, and so I, it doesn't matter to me what local church you go to. It, what matters is that you're plugged into a local church that is preaching the Bible and loving people. And, and wherever you find, find your place, that's, that's good. Um, Obviously, our hope is that this church would be a place where you can find that too. But um, that's, that's where we need to go. We need to see that the church is global. It does involve everybody who believes in Jesus, but it's also expressed locally. So that's that. Um, let's work through this um, for a little bit. There are a lot of metaphors that the Bible uses for the church. And I think these metaphors are actually super helpful. They're helpful for us to kind of get an understanding of what the church is and how, how God sees it. Um, so here's where we're going to start looking at a bit of scripture. Um, there are metaphors in scripture that are taken from agriculture. Quite a few of them, actually. I pulled out uh, four, I think. Um, and the... The idea here is that God uses the analogy or the metaphor of agriculture to help us understand a, a little bit of what the church is meant to be. Not in, not, like there's lots of different metaphors, so we got to put it all kind of together. But if you just look at a few of these, John 10, well, we, we don't even have to turn to that one. Uh, we just read some of that. There, Jesus basically connects the church to being a flock of sheep uh, that he's the shepherd of. And so that may not land with you and me in our, in our society today. I mean, maybe it does. Um, I know there's people in our church that raise sheep, and that's cool. Um, but the idea here is that we are, we're, we're God's flock, and he is our shepherd, and he's caring for us. And so sheep are communal creatures, right? They thrive in community. They don't do well isolated and alone. And so there's something to be taught to us there. Uh, John 15, we can turn to this one, verse 5. Um, this is where Jesus uses the analogy of the vine and the branches. He says, <clears throat> I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever, um, sorry, I lost my place. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. Uh, so in that one verse, I mean, we can read all of John 15, but in that one verse, he's talking about how we, as God's people, have to find our life source in him. That he's the one that gives us the ability to have fruit in our lives, to produce Christian 
virtues and the things that we're, we're striving for as we mature. Um, and so you're seeing this call to be connected to Jesus, to abide in Jesus, to stay, stay rooted in him. So we, he's the vine, he's the life source. We're the branches, so we're shooting off of that into uh, fruit-producing uh, people. 1 Corinthians 3, uh, 6 through 8. He, he says this. Um, you know, I'll actually start in verse 5. So in the context here, Paul's addressing the divisions that exist in the church. And there are people in Corinth who are kind of trying to pick and choose who they prefer um, as far as their leaders go. And he says, so what then is Apollos and what is Paul? There was kind of two factions. Some people were like, we like Paul. Other people, we like Apollos. He said, we're just servants through whom you believed as the Lord assigned to each. He says, I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. So neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything, but only God who gives the growth. He who plants and he who waters are one, and each will receive his wages according to his labor. So there we're seeing the metaphor of the church is of a field, a farm field. And, and Paul is writing to this church as, as the guy who... Uh, started the church, helped establish the church. He was kind of the lead, the lead guy initially when he got to Corinth and led some people to faith, and he, he helped to develop that church. So he's saying, I just planted this. And then Apollos came after, Paul left, and Apollos took on the work of watering it. But Paul makes the point that neither he or Apollos really matters at the end of the day because God's the one who grows the church. God's the one who makes fruit and life happen in the church. And so we just plant and we water, but God gives the growth. God gets all the glory for what happens in the church. And so it's not about us. And he's just basically pivoting away from this idea of, well, I'm, I'm the guy who has to run, run this thing. No, he's given all the credit to the Lord. And so he also says uh, in verse 9, he says, we are God's fellow workers and you are God's field. So there's the analogy of the field that he's planting and watering. Um, Matthew 13. Let's go there for a minute here. Um, yeah, so this is the parable of uh, the seeds and the sower. Right, so maybe you're familiar with this, but... Jesus tells this story in Matthew 13 of a, of a man who went out to, to sow seeds and he's scattering seeds um, and those seeds land in different places, uh, different types of soil, um, some hard and rocky, some impenetrable, some good soil. Uh, and basically the idea here is that, that God's word is going to go out like, like seeds being scattered and some people are going to hear it and receive it and grow and become mature Christians and others uh, may not hear it and receive it. They might hear it, but they don't receive it or that, those kinds of things. So again, just another agricultural metaphor. There's lots of metaphors uh, along those lines, and we could just keep going. There's mostly uh, agricultural metaphors because that was the world 
that they lived in. Um, but there's also metaphors from architecture as well. So um, in 1 Corinthians 3, 9, the next words that he says after you are God's field is he says, you are God's building. You're God's building. So there's that, that's uh, architecture, sorry. And so he's, he's saying that they're the building. 1 Peter 2, uh, 4 to 8. Let me get there. He says, as you come to him, come to Jesus, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. So there the analogy is of uh, stones being built up into a structure. And I think the picture he's painting and that his, his hearers would have understood was the picture of the temple in Jerusalem uh, was made from massive, massive stones and it was all structured that way and it was a, a sight to behold. Um, and eventually that temple was destroyed in AD 70. But I think what Peter's doing here is he's just saying, hey, Jesus is actually the true living cornerstone. And we're just smaller stones that are going to be used to build up this thing called the church. You also have Hebrews um, 3, 3 to 6, uses some um, architecture uh, analogy as well. It says, um, for Jesus has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses, as, as much more glory as the builder of the house has more honor than the house itself. For every house is built by someone, but the builder of all things is God. Now, Moses was faithful in all God's house as a servant to testify to things that were spoken of later, but Christ is faithful over God's house as a son, and we are his house. If indeed we hold fast our confession and our boasting, uh, in our and our boasting in our hope, uh, so so there you're seeing that we are God's house. So the the builder of the house is God. We're just within it. And then I think similarly, First Timothy three fifteen. We'll just that'll be the last one we look at on this. Um, it says, is that right? Three fifteen. Um, yeah. Uh, if if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of the truth. So pillars uh, in the Greek world, very you, you've all seen pictures of Greek architecture from the, the ancient world, right? There's all these pillars. So again, we're talking about that that analogy. There was actually a second analogy in that one. Um, which is a good segue. There's another common analogy for the local church, and that's from human life or human existence. And the first one we just saw in that passage um, was the household of God. So, that, so you live in a home, you have family members, you operate as a, as a household. Right? And so the church is described in that passage in 1 Timothy 3 as a household. 1 Timothy 5, since, we're, since I'm already there, uh, 1 to 2, he, he uses a similar picture. 
Um, He says, do not rebuke an older man, but encourage him as you would a father. Younger men as brothers, older women as mothers, younger women as sisters in all purity. So there you're seeing the dynamics of the church being fathers, sons, um, sisters, brothers, right? Those, Those kinds of things. Human life, human existence. Uh, Ephesians four fifteen to sixteen. You can look at that one quickly here. Um, oops, going the wrong way. It says, uh, yeah, rather speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into Him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. So there's an analogy of the human body uh, being pictured there. That's the same in 1 Corinthians 12 as well. So, uh, and then uh, 5, uh, Ephesians 5, there's an analogy of Christ and the church. Um, the analogy is of a husband and a wife, a marriage. So that's a pretty common one throughout the scriptures as well. So all these analogies related to human life and human existence, he's, he's trying to help us understand what the church is. The church is a family. The church is like a body. The church should be working together towards a common goal, like your body is supposed to be working with itself to, to be healthy. And, right, and obviously when things go wrong, you're, it's called being sick or having, having a physical problem, right? There's... There, the things are supposed to work together in harmony. Things are supposed to be unified and, and built up together. And I think the agricultural analogies are really getting at the idea that God is the one who truly is the person growing the church. It's not us. Um, God is the one who's in control of that because only God can produce the crops. We know that. We know that farmers do not have any ability to actually make a harvest happen. They can sow they can water, and then they can pray for the sun. They can pray for more rain. They can do what those things, but they can't actually make it grow. God can, and God, God is the one who does it. So those analogies and those metaphors are, are helpful. Okay, well, let's get into this now. Uh, these are the marks of the church. Um, what makes a church a church? That's what we're trying to answer with this. Uh, is the church just a group of people that meet once a week? Is the church a building? Um, what are the defining characteristics of a true church? That's what we're trying to get at when we say the marks of a church. What are those indicators of what makes a true church? And this is a really, uh, this was a huge question that needed to be answered during the Reformation. So uh, up until the 1500s, the church existed primarily uh, as the Roman Catholic Church. And then uh, there, was, there was some outliers. I mean, certainly there were, before the 1500s, there were outliers um, who, who saw that things were not going well and there were problems within the structure of the Roman Catholic Church. Uh, they tried to bring some reformation. They typically got killed for it. Okay, so... That's what happens because, you know, they were basically the government as, as well. It wasn't just, there was no separation of church and state. We have to understand the historical context. To our ears now as modern Americans, we can't wrap our heads around a, a 
Catholic state or a state that's actually the church. But that's how the world operated um, for a long time. And so then you get these guys named Martin Luther. Uh, you get a guy named John Calvin. You get a guy named uh, Erwick Zwingli. Uh, you get other, other people in the mix that aren't as well known. But, but really, Calvin and Luther are the two that are probably the most household names for us. These two guys uh, were, they kind of overlapped, but Luther came first. Luther was a bit older than Calvin, and he, he kind of launched this thing called the Reformation in Germany. And then Calvin was in France and then eventually over in uh, Switzerland. Um, but, but anyways, that's, that's a church history issue. So, but what we're talking about is that as these guys came you know, to, to see the problems in the church, uh, they had to ask some very fundamental questions like, what is a church? What is a true church? And, and how do we define that? And so there's a couple of definitions I'll give you here from these guys. The Lutheran uh, Augsburg uh, Confession was written in 1530. So this is how that confession defined the church. It says the congregation of saints in which the gospel is rightly taught and the sacraments rightly administered. So we'll, we'll get into what the sacraments are there and what all that, but that's how they would define a church in the Augsburg Confession. Two characteristics, the gospel rightly preached uh, or taught and the sacraments rightly administered. Okay, Calvin largely agrees. Uh, Calvin's Institutes, he wrote in the 1500s as well. Uh, wherever we see the word of God purely preached and heard and the sacraments administered according to Christ's institution, there it is not to be doubted a church of God exists. So he phrases it a little bit differently, but he has the same, he hits on the same issues. The word of God being preached, sacraments being administered, he adds according to Christ's institution. And he says, if, that, if those two things are there, then there's a church. And so now understanding the context of this, that those guys would have said that the Roman Catholic church was not a church by that definition because they weren't preaching the word of God and they weren't correctly administering the sacraments. Um, and so that, they, that was a big thing, right? So they were trying to make this, like they're trying to draw a line in the sand uh, in the Reformation and, and make that claim. So that was, that was the, sort of the historical context of that. Uh, the Belgic Confession, this one is also, I think this one came out of Germany as well, but this was a, not Lutheran, but a, just another stream of the Reformation, 1561. This one defines it a little further, gives it a little more nuance. And they say the true church can be recognized if it has the following marks. The church engages in the pure preaching of the gospel. It makes use of the uh, pure administration of the sacraments as Christ instituted them. And that's the key phrase because they, they're, they're saying that the Roman church was not doing it the way Christ instituted them. Uh, it practices church discipline for correcting faults. So now they add a third mark from Calvin and Luther, uh, at least in those quotes that we read. And I'm sure that those guys would have agreed with that statement for sure. Um, but it says, in short, it governs itself according to the pure word of God, rejecting all things contrary to it and holding Jesus Christ as the only head. And so that, that's also crucial, the only head. So that's kind of a, 
a shot across the bow uh, at the Pope, okay? Uh, by these marks, one can be assured and recognizing the true church, uh, assured of recognizing the true church, and no one ought to be separated from it. So there, there was another, so you see, this is all, none of this is outside of a historical context. That's, it's important to understand that. There's a historical context, and it's, a, it's, a, it's good to understand that. So, so bringing that all down, um, the word of God is being taught. Uh, ordinances, this is how, this is the phrasage that our doctrinal statement uses. The, it uses the word ordinances instead of sacraments. Um, and we can get into the differences there. Um, basically, very quickly, uh, an ordinance is, is used because we believe that God or Jesus ordained us to do these things. A sacrament, that word comes from, basically it's a means of grace, or it's a way in which God gives us grace. And, and there's, a, there's some nuance that needs to be discussed there. But, so we use the word ordinances. Um, so the word of God's taught. Ordinances are practiced. Discipline, church discipline is exercised. So Bible being preached, baptism, the Lord's Supper rightly administered, and Christians corrected when sinning. That's what discipline in the church context is meant to get us to is help, help Christians who are struggling with a sin, overcome that, bring that to Christ. Right? It's not meant to be punitive. It's not meant to kick people out. That's how a lot of people under, think of church discipline. It's not its purpose um, at all. It's meant to correct and help bring restoration. But those three things are kind of the historic um, reformation uh, definition of, of the church. And so that, that's helpful. Um, but I think we need to spend a little time here talking about the ordinances or the sacraments, because this is where Christians will differ from one another, largely. And, and our church has a perspective on these, and churches, other churches will have a different perspective. So again, we're talking about a, uh, an issue that we want to define for you, let you know where we stand on it. Um, you may or may not agree but uh, hopefully you have good reasons for what you believe on it. So let's talk about the ordinance or sacrament, if you want to use that word, of baptism. Um, this comes from the London Baptist Confession, which was written in 1689. It's a long time ago. Uh, but here's how they articulated it. Here's how they define it. And I think I largely agree with this. I mean, I think I completely agree with it, actually. But baptism is an ordinance... Uh, of the New Testament, ordained by Jesus Christ. So that's where that ordinance word comes from, being ordained by Jesus. To be unto the party baptized, a sign, and I put that in italicized and underlined it because that's the key. It's the key. A sign of his fellowship with him, with Jesus, in Jesus' death and resurrection, of his being engrafted into him, of remission of sins, and of his giving up unto God through Jesus Christ to live and walk in newness of life. So baptism, by this definition, is an ordinance of Jesus. It's a sign of the reality that exists in that person's heart. So our view of baptism is that it is for believers to cross that line and exercise this this ordinance, after they've confessed their sins and repented of their sins, because it's not a conferring of, of grace onto you. 
It is a sign that God's grace has been conferred to you by your faith and belief. And so that's, that's where the, the differences would be between our church or churches like ours, which would be, we're not a Baptist church, but we are Baptistic in our theology, uh, if that makes sense. There's a, there's a difference there. We're not a Baptist church, but we are Baptistic, or we believe in believers' baptism as the model of the New Testament. And so it's a sign. So the London Baptist Confession helps kind of guide us to that. Um, so baptism is a sign of something that's happened. Um, so the question then is, well, then who should be baptized? Well, this is how we've, we've defined it. This is just I pulled this out of our baptism booklet. We have a little uh, booklet on baptism for anybody who's interested in it. Um, but this is what we say in there. It says, baptism is an outward proclamation of faith and therefore only for believers in Jesus. Our understanding of the Bible is that every baptism we read of in the New Testament was preceded by a confession of sin and repentance, which is something that neither an unbeliever nor an infant can do. Because baptism represents a union with the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus, we believe only in, uh, in baptism of only believers. So that's obviously if you're coming from the Catholic Church or a Lutheran Church or some forms of Presbyterians, um, you're probably familiar with uh, infant baptism. And again, like not here to pick fights about that. I, I just don't see that modeled in the New Testament. Um, and and my, my friends on the other side of that issue who I love and care for, and hopefully they love and care for me, I assume they do, um, they, like we, would dis- we would differ on that. They would say, yeah, we see it. Uh, my Presbyterian friends would say that circumcision is replaced by baptism. So... They would say, well, the children of Israel were, ba- were circumcised at eight days old before they could make a profession of faith. They were brought into the community. Yeah, I, I mean, sure. But I, I don't really see that as a compelling case in the New Testament. Um, in fact, there's, there's a clear connection in, in Romans chapter 6 to baptism being connecting us with the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. Not, not circumcision, the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. Um, so it says, uh, verse, uh, we'll start in verse 3. Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death, and in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead, by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have been united with him in our death like his, we shall certain, certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. So we can, we can stop there. I mean, we could keep going, but that, that's why, so in our church, and again, I'm, I'm not going to quibble over modes of baptism, but we are a full immersion Baptist church in the sense of we bring people under the water and we take them out of the water because it signifies something. It is a picture. It's a sign of your union with Jesus. That doesn't happen because of the water. It happens because you have faith in Christ, right? So we're just doing outwardly what God has already done inwardly in your life. But we're bringing you down. That symbolizes your connection with his death. You're under the water for a couple seconds, and then you're brought up that burial and that resurrection. That's, that's the picture, 
And so that's why we do it. Um, and and that's, that's, our, that's our view on it. And as you read through the book of Acts, there really is a clear connection between repentance and baptism. I mean, there's one passage um, that people will turn to to say, well, see, they baptize babies. Um, and it's this one passage where uh, a guy gets converted, a Philippian jailer, I believe it was, and he goes home and Peter's, you know, getting the whole family saved and they all get baptized. And then my, it's called pedo-baptism. These, uh, these Baptists who, these, these people who want to baptize babies will say, well, that guy's family had to have babies in it. And it's like, well, that's kind of, I mean, maybe, sure, but I mean, like, it's not there. It's not in the text. It's not clear. Sure, I'll, I'll admit, yeah, it's definitely a possibility, and I, I can leave that, that crack open a little bit. And again, it's not something I would separate fellowship over, but uh, definitely something that we should be convicted on. Uh, so I, I say baptism is a secondary issue. So if you're looking at those concentric circles, you have absolutes, you have convictions. This would fall into the conviction category. And I think that churches need to have a, a conviction about this. And uh, if you have a different conviction than, than the church uh, would have, then you know, God bless you and we'll, we'll help you find a church that holds to the conviction you have. Like, it's really not uh, a huge uh, thing, but I, we're not going to just do everything for everybody because we have to have a, a conviction on this. And so that's, that's where we're at on baptism. Um, again, it's a big, it's a big study. You can definitely look into it more if you'd like, but, but that's baptism. All right. But what about the Lord's supper? This is the other, uh, sacrament or ordinance as we would call it, uh, that's mentioned in, in the, um, definitions we just read. This also comes from the London Baptist confession from 1689. Uh, this is how they define it. It says, the supper of the Lord Jesus was instituted by him the same night when he was betrayed to be observed in his churches until the end of the world for the perpetual remembrance and showing forth the sacrifice of himself in his death, confirmation of the faith of believers in all the benefits thereof, their spiritual nourishment and growth in him, their further engagement in and to all duties which they owe unto him, and to be a bond and a pledge of their communion with him and with each other. So um, that's basically, I mean, there's a lot there. There's a lot of words there. But it's, he's saying that it's instituted by Jesus the night he was betrayed, and it's meant to be continued on in the church until the end of the world to remember him, to remember his sacrifice and death, to, and, and to remind us of what we owe to him and to nourish us spiritually uh, and to help us pledge to commune with him. That's why we also use the term communion uh, to describe this as well because we're communing with Jesus in that. They go on to say, um, in this ordinance, Christ is not offered up to his father nor any real sacrifice made at all for the remission of sin or the quick of the quick or the dead, but only a memorial of that one offering up of himself by himself upon the cross once for all and a spiritual oblation of all possible praise unto God for the same. 
so they're trying to clarify very, very clearly here that the, the communion or the Lord's Supper that we partake in does not sacrifice Jesus again. And again, that's, that's going towards the Roman Catholic view. And, and, and I know there's nuance in the Roman Catholic view, and I want to be fair to them. Uh, but generally, uh, the Mass is, is a whole thing of re-crucifying Jesus for your sins again. And, and that's a problem. And that was one of the big problems of the Reforma- that the Reformation tried to address. So these guys, uh, during that Reformation era, uh, were trying to make it clear that this was a memorial uh, it was a remembrance thing. It wasn't actually bringing Jesus back to the cross. He died once for all. And that's what the Bible says. So, so that makes sense. Okay. Um, so who should partake of the Lord's Supper? Um, those who have genuine belief in the saving work of Jesus for the forgiveness of their sins. So those who are genuinely in their heart trusting Christ. And those who have, uh, who understand that they need Jesus. So eating and drinking in this way reminds us again of our need for the work of Christ, and that He is the true bread of life. However, First Corinthians eleven, the passage we tend to read on on this subject, does give us a warning to not partake of this in an unworthy manner. Uh, so before we get into what that means. Uh, what it means to eat in an unworthy manner and eat judgment and eat and drink judgment on ourselves. We will look at the context of that passage, but before we get there, uh, I just want to emphasize that this, our view is that communion should be partaken of by anyone who truly believes in Jesus Christ and understands that they need him. Uh, That it's, it's an open, we practice an open table. Now, again, lots of different churches practice this differently, uh, some churches have a very uh, closed table, closed to only members, or or have some other, you know, way of of fencing the table. Our our view is that this is Christ's table, and we need to give you the the call to say, don't do this if you're not a believer. But if you are a believer, you're free to partake because it's Christ's table, and he, he welcomes you to him to him if if that's where your heart genuinely is. So that's where we're at on that. Um, but 1 Corinthians 11 does warn us to not partake in an unworthy manner. And that question of what is an unworthy manner is a loaded one and one that I think uh, we should look at in context. Because if we just pull that, those two words out of context, it's very easy for us to just define that on our own and say, well, unworthy manner is anything I deem to be unworthy of you going to the table. And that's a dangerous place to be. No one in this room wants to, to be in that boat. So um, let, let's, let's see what he's talking about here. So um, let's start in verse 17, and then we'll work our way through. You'll, you'll get a sense of how dysfunctional this church really really is. But... He says, but in the following instructions, I do not commend you. You're not doing a good job. That's what he says. Because when you come together, when you gather as a church, it is not for the better, but for the worse. For in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you. And I believe it in part. For there must be factions among you in order that those who are genuine among you may be recognized. 
when you come together, it is not the Lord's Supper that you eat. He's just flat out saying you're not doing it the right way. Because in eating, each one goes ahead with his own meal. One goes hungry, another gets drunk. What? Do you not have houses to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I commend you in this? No, I will not. All right, that is a pretty messed up situation, right? Can we all agree on that? Um, They are just, they're just going crazy. They're just doing their own thing. And they don't have any unity on this. They're all in factions. Um, There are people who are getting drunk at church. There are people who are eating without others. It's just, it's a whole huge mess. And it's obviously full of, full of sin. Then he says, these are the words that we, we tend to read is for I received from the Lord, what I also delivered to you that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he also took the cup after supper saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So that's the passage that that tends to get read. And then he says, whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. That is why many of you are weak and ill and some have died. But if we judged ourselves truly, we, we would not be judged. But when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined so that we may not be condemned along with the world. So then, my brothers, when you come together to eat, wait for one another. If anyone is hungry, let him eat at home so that when you come together, it will not be for judgment. About the other things, I will give instructions when I come. I don't know what those other things are. And so, yeah, but all right, here's the, so, so clearly the context is an, is a unity issue. It, it's, a, it's clearly the context. Now, could, could there be a broader definition of an unworthy manner? Yeah, I'm sure there, I'm sure there's lots of ways we could eat and drink in an unworthy manner. Uh, but I think we have to be careful not to go beyond what the scriptures say and, and not make legalism the driving force here. I think the heart of what we're doing as we commune with Jesus at his table is we're also communing with one another. And so there's a participation here uh, together that they're, that they're neglecting. There's also the element of uh, favoritism where some are showing up early, eating maybe better food or different food and the poor are coming later. And so the rich are sort of showing themselves to be superior to the poor. And, and that's a unity issue too, right? So the whole church is just dysfunctional here. And, and Paul's going, you guys are not actually rightly administering uh, the Lord's table. This is, a, this is a huge problem. Now this gets to the question though of were the Corinthians a church by the Reformation definition? <laughs> 
Yes, they were, because Paul calls them a church. So we've got to be careful not to, you know, make too many hard, hard stances here. Um, but clearly they, they needed correction, and Paul is bringing that correction to them by saying, bringing this all together, he says, So then, when you come together, wait for one another. And if anyone's hungry, then eat at home first so you don't have to go chowing down while you're at church. Um, be patient with each other. Now, again, in the context of the Corinthian church, this would have been a house church, a small group of people, relatively speaking. They would have gathered around a meal probably every, every Sunday or whenever they gathered. Um, and so there was like a whole thing happening here. And then they were supposed to take a part of their service and, and remember the Lord through eating and drinking of the bread and, and the wine. But um, again, I, I think there's, there's a lot of um, traditions that view this differently than others. I think we need to hold this with an open hand and recognize that the fundamental issue that we're to do and partake of is the remembrance of Jesus Christ crucified for our sins. That's the whole middle section when he's defining what true participation in the Lord's Supper is. He just basically walks them through what Jesus did at the Last Supper for his own disciples. And says, this is what you're supposed to do. Eat and drink in remembrance of Jesus, uh, and we proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. That's what we're doing. So I think that's just the foundation of it. But um, a lot more could be said, of course, but we we need to keep rolling here. Uh, I think I already said all that, so we'll skip through. Um, So what we're seeing here from the definitions we've looked at of the marks of the church, preaching the gospel clearly, the sacraments or ordinances, baptism, Lord's Supper, are some, and church discipline was mentioned as well, uh, are some of the marks of a true church. But I don't think this is an exhaustive list. I think this is a good, a good list. I think that these are all true things that churches should be striving to preach clearly, to administer the sacraments rightly, uh, and, and to, to help correct wayward Christians. I think all that's true and that's right. But there are many other markers of a, of a healthy local church. And I, I just want to take us to Revelation 2 and 3 as we, uh, as we talk about these markers. Because I think this is the biblical passage, the clearest biblical passage, kind of concisely in what Jesus is looking for in his church. And he writes seven letters to seven churches. Um, that's what Revelation 2 and 3 are about. They're, they're written by Jesus to the churches, um, and these seven churches are kind of representative of all the churches throughout all of the church age, right? They were specific local churches, but the problems that they're, in, that they're facing, the problems that, they're address, that Jesus is addressing are going to be true in some churches throughout all of the, the church age that we're in until Christ comes back. So, Hearing what he says to them is very helpful and informative to us if we're looking to have a healthy local church. What are the markers that he's looking for in, in the churches he writes to? That's, that's where we're kind of looking at. So if you want to look there with us, uh, Revelation 2 and 3, we'll walk through these seven churches together. And I'm just going to pull out uh, a couple things from each of these. We're not going to we could spend a long time on all of these, but we, we don't have uh, the time for that. So 
Um, chapter two starts the letters. Um, and so it says to the angel of the church in Ephesus. So now he's writing to the church in Ephesus. Write this. The words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands. So the words of Jesus. I know your works, your toil and patient endurance, and yet how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and found them to be false. I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake, and you have not grown weary. So that's all uh, commendation, right? Saying, Saying what they're doing well. But I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love you had at first. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen. Repent and do the work you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place, unless you repent. Yet this you have. You hate the work of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. He who has an ear to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will grant to eat the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. So the church in Ephesus... Um, he, he commends them for something and he corrects them about something. But we can, we can pull out of this that what Jesus values in a local church is right doctrine because that's what they're commended for. You guys are believing the right things. You're, you're firm in what you believe. And he values love. He wants the church to be a loving church. And, and that was where they were failing. They, weren't, they had lost the love they had at first. Something had happened. Uh, where they just sort of drifted away from love. And what they had was sound doctrine. They believed the right things, but they didn't live it out in a loving way. And so Jesus is both commending and correcting. But if we pull that together and say, okay, well, what are the marks of the church? Well, two of them would be right doctrine and love. That, that's probably pretty obvious, but vital for us. All right, let's go on to the next one. To the church in Smyrna, write the words of the last, first and the last who died and came to life. He says, I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you are rich. And the slander of those who say they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Do not fear what you are about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison that you may be tested and for 10 days you will have tribulation. Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. He who has an ear to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says of the churches. The one who conquers will not be hurt by the second death. So the church in Smyrna only gets commendation, and it's for this. It's for their faithfulness and suffering. So the church, a marker of a healthy church, is a church that stays faithful to Jesus in the midst of a suffering and difficult culture. And I, I don't know that we have to, I don't know that we've been tested in this way in, in our context, not nearly as much as the church in China or the church in Iran or any other number of places where it's illegal to be a Christian. Um, we don't have that, but, but the church is global and it's local, right? So not every church uh, not every local church is going to deal with the exact same things, but the church as a whole 
needs to stay faithful in suffering. And if we are called to suffer someday down the road as Christians, we're called on to stay faithful to Jesus. All right, Pergamum, verse 12, the, the angel to the church in Pergamum, write the words of him who has a sharp two-edged sword. He says, I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. Sounds like a fun place to do ministry, right? Yet you hold fast my name, and you do not deny my faith. Even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was killed among you, where Satan dwells. But I have a few things against you. You have some there who hold to the teaching of Balaam, who taught uh, Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel so that they might eat food sacrificed to idols and practice sexual immorality. So also you have some who hold to the teaching of the Nicolaitans, which he's already established he hates that teaching. Therefore repent. If not, I will come to you soon and war against them with the sword of my mouth. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will give some of the hidden manna, and I will give him a white stone with a new name written on the stone that no one knows except the one who receives it. So Pergamum has a, a, a mixed bag here. Um, he commends them for staying faithful or staying true to the faith. But he doesn't commend them. He corrects them in the fact that they're harboring people who are not actually true to the faith. So this is sort of a mixed bag, but there are some who are believing false doctrine. There are some who are practicing uh, sexual immorality and, and are just sort of stuck in this, this cycle of Balaam and all this old, the Old Testament story there from Numbers. Um, but basically he's, not, he's, he's just using that as an example of how they're, some of the people in the church are not actually being faithful. So it's sort of a mixed bag, and that's true. Right, like every church sort of has a mixed bag of people, and um, we we should help correct and discipline. So again, you're seeing church discipline, I think, as sort of an underlier here as well. Like, help get these people corrected as they're as they're making a mess of their lives. All right, Thyatira says the words of the Son of God. This is verse 18. Who has eyes like the flame of fire, and whose feet are like burnished bronze. I know your works, your love and faith and service and patient endurance, and that your latter works exceed the first. But this I have against you, that you tolerate the woman Jezebel, who calls herself a prophetess and is teaching and seducing my servants to practice sexual immorality and to eat food sacrificed to idols. I gave her time to repent, but she refuses to repent of her sexual immorality. Behold, I will throw her onto her sickbed, and those who commit adultery with her I will throw into great tribulation, unless they repent of her works. And I will strike her children dead. That sounds really harsh, but he's not speaking about a direct person. He's talking generally here. And all the churches will know that I am he who searches minds and heart and will give to each of them according to their works. But to the rest of you in Thyatira, who do not hold to the teachings that I have, uh, who, uh, who have not learned what some call the deep things of Satan, to you I say, I do not lay on you any other burden. Only hold fast 
what you have until I come. The one who conquers and who keeps my works until the end, to him I will give authority over the nations, and he will rule with them in, with a rod of iron, and, and with uh, when earthen pots are broken in pieces, even as I myself have received authority from my Father, and I will give him the morning star. He who has an ear to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says of the churches. Uh, so Thyatira, well, again, mixed bag, right? Half the church, or a good chunk of the church, were being obedient to Jesus, right? So obedience to Jesus, doing what he calls us to do, living the kind of life he wants us to live, that's good. Within that same church, there are people who are doing the exact opposite, and Jesus is going to deal with them. So it's kind of an interesting thing where he's going, you know, some of you are doing great, some of you are doing terribly. Welcome to the church, right? That's, that's kind of the idea. But um, the commended for obedience to Jesus, they are corrected for sexual immorality, living, living like the world in that regard. Okay, Sardis, chapter 3. He says, I know your works. You have the reputation of uh, being alive, but you are dead. Wake up and strengthen what remains and is about to die. For I have not found your works complete in the sight of my God. Remember then what you received and heard. Keep it and repent. If you will not wake up, I will come like a thief, and you will not know at what hour I will come against you. Yet you still have a few names in Sardis, people who have not soiled their garments, and they will walk with me in white, for they are worthy. The one who conquers will be clothed thus thus in white garments, and I will never blot his name out of the book of life. I will confess his name before my father and before his angels. He who has an ear to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. So church in Sardis, basically nothing but negative here. There's, he has this little glimmer of, well, there's a few people that actually are Christians, but the rest of you aren't actually Christians. And so what we, can, we can't take anything positive away from this. But from the negative, what we can learn about the church is that the church needs to be gospel-centered. <laughs> like, the problem here is that this church, they have a reputation of being alive, but they're dead. They, they're, they're, doing, they're going through the motions, but they don't have a genuine, actual transformation of heart in Christ. And so churches need to be about the gospel, the good news of calling people to belief in Christ and, and what that means. So that's one thing we can take away. There's a lot there. We have two more churches. Philadelphia. It says, I know your works, verse 8. Behold, I've set before you an open door, which no one is able to shut. I know you have uh, but little power, and yet you have kept my word and have not denied my name. Behold, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan who say that they are Jews and are not, but lie. Behold, I will make them come and bow down before your feet, and they will learn uh, that I have loved you, because you have kept my word about patient endurance. I will keep you from the hour of trial that's coming to the whole world, to try those who dwell on the earth. I am coming soon. Hold fast what you have so that no one may seize your crown. The one who conquers, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. Never shall I go out, and I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, 
which comes down from my God out of heaven and my own new name. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. So church in Philadelphia doing pretty well um, in a tough situation. They're doing well. But he mainly commends them for being committed to his word. So Bible focused. That's what the church should be. Right? And we, we already kind of saw that marker in, in the definitions we looked at. But th- that's what he's commending this church for. And then Laodicea, last one here. It says, I know your works. You're neither cold nor hot. Would that you were either cold or hot. So because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. For you say, I am rich, I have prospered, I need nothing. Not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined by fire so that you may be rich and white garments so that you may clothe yourself and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen and salve to anoint your eyes so that you may see. Those whom I love, I reprove and discipline. So be zealous and repent. Behold, I stand at the door and I knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him and he with me. The one who conquers, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne as I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. So the church in Laodicea is an interesting one because it's probably the most well-known of, of all these churches. We think about getting spit out of Jesus' mouth. And um, the key to think about here is that hot and cold that he's calling them to be are both good things. Okay, we think of hot as good, cold as bad, and he would rather us be good or bad. That's not what he's saying. Cold is good, hot is good, right? Cold drink, in proper beverage that's cold is good. Proper beverage that's hot is good. They have their place. What he doesn't want is for them to just be wishy-washy. He wants them to be committed to him. And so Laodicea had two water sources. Um, That's where the context here is, is that basically there's a hot spring that they would travel through aqueducts, the Roman aqueducts to Laodicea. And by the time the hot spring water got to the city, it was just this tepid temperature. It wasn't very pleasant. And then there were also mountains that they would run mountain water down um, and then that also would warm up by the time it got to Laodicea. So the cold water of the mountain, the hot water in the hot springs, both good sources of water got gross by the time it got to them. So um, that's what he's saying. And, and he's saying essentially, um, here's the problem. You guys think you're doing great, but you aren't doing great. You need me. And so I actually think that the whole warning here is about legalism because legalism fundamentally does believe that we're doing fine on our own. I don't really need Jesus to help me here. I'm good. I'm, I'm doing fine. That's the heart of legalism. And we all struggle with that to some degree or another, of course. But as churches, we should fight against that. That's one of the, I think, markers of a healthy church. So this is not an exhaustive list. Really, you need the whole Bible to get the whole point of what Jesus wants for his church. That's why we have the Bible. But it's a good starting point. So um, at the end of the day, the purpose of the church is to love God, love people, and help people love Jesus. Right? That's, that's what we're here to do. We're called to disciple. We're called to care um, and, and nurture people into Christ. And we're called to worship Jesus. 
So we're, we're called to love him, love each other, and help people love him. So um, worship, care, community, discipleship. Um, and that's, our, that's just like the way that we verb, verb, verbalize it here. But, you know, again, anything that's kind of getting at that heart is, is a good thing. It doesn't have to be phrased that way. It's just our, our way of talking about it. So um, with that, let me, I'll open it up for questions. Um, and I have a free book for anybody who wants it. There are free books on the back, kind of behind where Dwayne's sitting there. So this is on, uh, this is called Rediscover Church. I got a stack of these for free uh, from Crossway Books. I love Crossway Books. We're not sponsored by Crossway Books, but I love Crossway. They give me free books to give to you guys. So you're welcome to just grab one. If you're interested in that, feel free to take it. Um, they didn't cost us anything, so it doesn't cost you anything. Good for you. Um, but questions, anything you want to talk through on? Well, we, I know we went real quick through an hour and a half, but. Would we be safe to say that our church believes there's two sacraments? You could say that, yeah. Okay. I mean, I, I don't have a problem with the, the verbiage. You know, ordinance, sacrament. I mean, there's probably a nuance there that we could quibble about, but yeah, I've used both terminology. Okay. Yeah, for sure. Either way. Yep. When we're doing the correct, what was it that the church has to have the correct? Yeah, ordinances, sacraments. Right. Yep. So mm-hmm. we would be practicing two. Correct. Yes. That's right. Lord's Supper. Yeah, they have like eight or nine or seven. Yeah, that's what it is. So. Yeah, they've got seven sacraments, right. So that was one of the things the Reformation guys were like, no. There's two things that Jesus instituted for the church that we can see in the Bible. So that's where all that has now kind of trickled down to where we're at. Yeah, yeah. it's interesting though, for sure. Do you know where purgatory is? Do I know where it is? <laughs> uh, I, I think nowhere, because it doesn't exist. Um, but, there ain't something. Yeah, no. No. They always... They always said it was if you didn't Abraham's bosom. No, if you, no, if you died before you were baptized or you right. killed yourself, no, you were going believe. to Okay. Hmm. No, not quite there. Well, and I asked where it was. <laughs> That's what I was always taught. Yeah. yeah. As a Catholic. That's. <laughs> Purgatory was actually one of the most. Like in church history, that was one of the biggest issues that the Reformation fought against was purgatory. Um, so that's a, yeah, we, we do not believe in purgatory. Oh, yeah. There's no purgatory. No, no, it's not there. <laughs> All the nuns used to tell me that I'm not going to purgatory because of your behavior. <laughs> that's what they would tell us kids at the same time. Wow. Wow. I'm so sorry. Yeah. <laughs> awesome. Well, I'll pray for us. It's about time to end. If you have questions, I'll be around for a little bit here. So let's, let's pray. Uh, Jesus, thanks for uh, giving us the time to talk about your church and what it means. And I uh, just pray that if there's anything that was said that isn't quite right, you would help us forget that and um, just help us to take away the things that we need to hear tonight. And we're, we're grateful to be able to be part of your church. Uh, that we've been called and saved and ransomed uh, by you through uh, Christ's death. So we, uh, we just ask that we'd go in that, and uh, we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.